Well, good morning. It's good to see you all today and to join you once again as we undertake part two uh, from last week, if you recall. I'm looking forward in, in this week's text and delaying some more of of the groundwork for the, the topic we began last time of addressing sin in the camp, if you'll recall, in our time through 1 Corinthians, we've come to the section where Paul is turning to directly ad- address the Corinthians' unwillingness to deal with unrepentant, ongoing sin right there in their midst. And the, their tendency to want to sort of brush that aside and not deal with it. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ben introduced this topic about the shocking reality of sin in the camp and how serious that is. And last week we began to look at the need to address that sin once we find it. And this is an issue that I know is uh, a bit, as the British might say, fraught in our culture. We don't like dealing with sin. We don't like clear boundaries. We don't like structure. We're Americans, right? <laughs> In fact, even this weekend, I was at a, a soccer game for one of our children, and there was two ladies having a conversation behind me the whole game about their churches, and they were going back and forth, kind of trying to outbrag each other about whose church was better. And it was, well, you know, our church doesn't have rules about this. Well, our church doesn't even have a denomination. Well, our church doesn't even have any formal leadership. Well, our church doesn't even require anybody to go to seminary. Well, our church, and they kind of went back and forth, and it was like, I almost wanted to raise my hand and say, would either of you define what this thing is that's left after you've eliminated everything that you would recognize as being a church? Uh, And I don't mean to say that to to uh, pass any kind of judgment on their love for Christ in saying that. And there are church movements throughout history that in reaction to to over-formalization, in reaction to where men have imposed their structure on the church, have, have kind of swung the pendulum the other way. I think of movements like the Swiss Brethren movement and such that, that love Christ deeply. Uh, but at some point you have to say, what is this thing that we're doing? And how does God define it? And how do we maintain it in a way where it is still recognizable generation to generation to generation as that which Christ established by his death and burial and resurrection? And that's what Paul is trying to do here in Corinth, right? As the church is being planted, he's saying, guys, we have got to take some things very seriously. Or what are we doing? Or what is this? How is this different than the world if we will not address sin in the camp? And so last week we talked about the value of addressing sin in the camp for the one who is the sinner. Uh, Paul is laying that out as a case that we need to judge sin rightly in the church for the sake of the one who is sinning to call them back, that they would, that they would be restored, that they would have salvation instead of being lost. And we also mentioned as we went through there, the kind of judging that we're talking about. Right? Remember, the Bible uses the word judging in at least three different ways. There's the kind of judging where you call a spade a spade. You, uh, you judge something according to its definition. You say, God has said, this is what this thing is called. This is that thing. Therefore, this is that. That's one kind of judging. There's judging in a judicial way with law, if you will, a judging that says, because you've done such and such, you are now condemned and here's your sentence and you pronounce judgment on somebody, whether that's in a court system or even divine judgment. And then thirdly, there's the kind of judging where you're comparing yourself to somebody else and you're saying, I'm the standard, you don't measure up, therefore you're inferior, or you're better than me, therefore I'm inferior, but it's a judgment related to yourself. The Bible tells us that we are not to judge one another comparing each other to ourselves because that's not the standard. We are not to judge each other in the terms of condemnation and passing judicial sentence because we're not the judge. But we are to judge rightly and to judge constantly calling things what God calls them. 
lest through deception and, and trickery, things sneak into the church that God has said are not to be there. And that's what he was talking about last week. As we address sin directly, as we address sin in the authority of Jesus Christ, and as we address sin lovingly for the salvation of the one being addressed. And so this week we're going to pick up at that point as Paul is then going to pivot and share the effect of sin on the church body as a whole and why we need to address sin for the good of the whole church. And so for this morning I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, as you're able, I know this morning has been some calisthenics. But we do want to honor the reading of God's word as you're able. Again, if that is a hardship, please uh, remain seated if that, is, if that is more comfortable for you. But as you're able, we will begin reading this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges Remove the wicked man among yourselves. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, I, I pray that you would help us to see how wonderful the sacrifice of Christ for us truly is, and that motivated by that and by what, what you have accomplished for us through Christ, we would become passionate about the purity of your bride that we would desire to see Valley Bible Church be a place where we walk in step with what we confess. And we know that in our flesh we cannot accomplish this. We are too weak. And so we ask that by your spirit you would empower and strengthen us so that we may indeed be in action what Christ has made us to be before you. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said last time we left off, addressing sin preserves the sinner. This week, your first point in the outline is addressing sin preserves the camp. It preserves the camp. And Paul's going to walk them through now why it is so important for the sake of the whole church to deal very decisively in this particular case with this immoral man who's been living with his father's wife why they have to step up and do the right thing and do it quickly. And he wants to begin by helping them realize the seriousness of sin in verse 6. They need to understand the seriousness of sin. Paul writes, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And here he's returning again to this chastisement of them for their boasting and for their arrogance that he's been repeating since chapter 4 and, and kind of hammering on this with them. Guys, stop bragging. You don't have anything to brag about. You think you're so sophisticated. You think you're so cool because, you know, you've picked your favorite church leaders. You think that, you know, you're better than Paul and you're better than the instruction in the gospel that I left you because somehow you've got this status in the surrounding culture where, where you're cool Christians. And he says, stop it. You cannot be boasting in your spiritual maturity and in, in how cool you are as a church when you've got ongoing unrepentant sin just glaringly staring out at the world from right in your heart. This kind of boasting is not good. Notice, it's not that all boasting is bad. There is a kind of boasting which is good. And it's the kind of boasting that Paul talks about throughout the New Testament. To boast in what Jesus Christ is doing for his glory. That kind of boasting should be on our lips all the time. What a wonderful Savior we indeed serve. And He's not idle. Guess what? He's busy doing lots of cool things for which we should be boasting. But to boast in and of ourselves, particularly when we are not dealing with sin, 
Paul says is not good. In the Greek there, that means not good. (laughs) Paul's chastisement to them, notice as well, is now shifting not to the sinner, but to the church. And he's not chastising the church for participating in the sin of the sinner, but for not dealing with it. And so what he is rebuking them for now is not actually primarily their action, but their lack of action in regard to this situation. They need to be proactively dealing with this, and they're not. And to help them realize why this is so serious, Paul's going to bring up a theme from the Passover feast. And he's writing to Corinth. This is not a Jewish city, but it's interesting. He doesn't see the need to explain a lot of the details here. His assumption is that they're pretty familiar with how Passover works, that great feast of the Jews where they celebrate how God brought them out of Egypt by putting a terrible judgment upon Egypt. Indeed, ten judgments culminating in a judgment of the death of the firstborn and the way that God had told them, you are to protect yourselves, you are to hide underneath the blood of a lamb spread over your door and to eat a feast prepared a very specific way so that the angel of death will pass over your home and preserve you, spare you, as he brings judgment on the land. And the Israelites celebrated at God's command, Passover, from that point on. Uh, Not perfectly. One of the things you'll notice in the Old Testament is the Passover disappears for a while, and that doesn't go well for the land, and then it's reclaimed. But this was a, a feast, and it was a pattern that they were familiar with. And Paul is going to pull imagery from this Passover feast to help picture the effect of sin. And he begins by talking about bread, of all things about bread notice he says don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump now let's be honest how many of you guys got sucked up into the pandemic sourdough bread craze how let's see okay one how'd it go it's pretty good yeah fantastic there's got to be more all right brent banana bread that's good too well, outside the walls of Valley Bible Church, there was this thing <laughs> where everybody got into sourdough bread. And, and you, you know how this works, right? With sourdough bread, you need sourdough starter. When we think of leaven, sometimes we just think of yeast, you know, a little jar of stuff you put in your freezer so it lasts longer, right? That's not really the kind of bread making that they're talking about here. What they would do is they would actually have some sourdough starter essentially it was an active culture and you'd keep a lump of it and uh, when you're making your next batch of bread you'd knead it all together and you'd make your little lump of bread and you would take a little bit of that and you'd set it aside so that you'd be ready for the next lump of bread and you just rinse and repeat and you keep going batch after batch after batch uh, and so some of these you know lines in the in the world uh, would last a long time right they've been used over and over and over that didn't happen in israel though In Israel, every year you had a new sourdough starter, and we'll talk about why in just a minute. But Paul is starting by saying, you guys have seen bread made, right? You just take this little lump, this little tiny lump, and you combine it with this big, huge batch of fresh dough. You start kneading that sucker together, and the next thing you know, your entire loaf of bread is leavened, right? When you pop that in the oven, you don't just get this one little boop. You know, like this one little tiny little hill that rises up where that little leaven lump went. The whole loaf rises because you've leavened the whole thing. And Paul's point is pretty, pretty clear here. There are certain things that when you leave them, when you expose them to the whole, they contaminate everything. They affect everything. They change the composition of everything. And that's what he's warning the Corinthians about. Leaving unrepentant sin unaddressed does to the church what leaving a lump of leaven in a lump of dough does to the entire loaf of bread. There's a couple quick lessons here before we move on. Paul's trying to teach us here that sin is never a benign tumor. Sin is never a benign tumor. Tolerated sin in one area never just stays there. I think sometimes we like to treat sin... Open sin, unrepentant sin in the life of an individual who's part of a church body as like, yeah, you know, everybody has their weird moles and warts. It's not a big deal. It's fine. It'll just stay there. We know it's a little unsightly, not the best thing, but it's okay. Paul's saying, no, sin is always cancer. 
sin is always cancer. Sometimes it's more aggressively obvious that it's spreading. Sometimes it seems to lie below the surface for a long time. But sin is always malignant. Sin that is tolerated is never sin that is contained. Sin that remains present becomes sin that is pervasive. And you probably have seen this, especially if you've parented. Have you ever noticed if one child has a bad attitude, that one child is not the only child that has a bad attitude for very long? Right? It spreads. It's contagious. When we allow sin in our church to go on in a defiant, rebellious, unrepentant way, we are inviting contagion to spread through the church. We are normalizing that which God says is not acceptable. We are making a culture in which that is declared to be okay. And, and as Paul was pointing out, it's, it's not okay. And I want to remind ourselves here what we're talking about. We're not talking about somebody who sins and says, I ought not to have done that. I wish to repent and be restored. That's not what we're talking about. We're all sinners, right? It's a really good thing that sinners are allowed to come to church. <laughs> Otherwise, we're done, right? What we're talking about is a person who says, I am going to make this sin my identity. I am going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep loving it. And I don't care what Jesus has to say about it. But I'm still going to pretend that I'm his follower. That's what we're talking about. Ongoing unrepentant sin. When you allow ongoing unrepentant sin to remain in a church, Paul says that's leaven. It spreads. It contaminates. Of course, we're not perfect. That's not the point. But as Christians, we must be those who are repenting diligently, carefully, so that the sin that is among us would constantly be being removed. Otherwise, Paul says, to try to boast of yourselves as a church when you allow such a cancerous tumor to be multiplying and spreading right in your midst is to be very deceived. Secondly, sin is serious. It will infect our whole lives. It will affect our whole church. We cannot boast simply in being mostly good. Mostly good. It's not enough for our church to say, hey, our, our track record's pretty good. There's only this percentage of our congregation that are still actively involved in robbery in an unrepentant way. Right? And he's actually going to call out swindlers in particular. You're like, hi, I'm, a, I'm Joe. I'm a swindler. Hey, who am I to judge? Welcome to church, you know. I love Jesus and stealing stuff. Amen. <laughs> right? It's, it sounds silly because we're still allowed to talk about swindling. Right? But how many sins that are just as egregious has the church decided, eh, let's just not talk about that. Uh, you know, that one's going to get us in trouble. Culture doesn't like us getting involved in that one. In a few weeks, Paul's going to be really explicit, and we're going to be really explicit on what some of those categories are that are not supposed to be found in the church. But we shouldn't be as a church content to boast that we're mostly good. Our boasting should be in Christ, and our passion would be that every single part of our church is being conformed to his image without exception, beginning with us, but also loving our neighbors enough to include those who would profess the name of Christ but are walking in sin as well. This point is simple and serious, as I mentioned, and by itself, I think it could have the danger of creating a church that is built around legalism, a church that is built around a harsh attitude, a judgmental attitude of one to another. And so Paul is going to now move pretty quickly from laying out the seriousness of sin to attaching it directly to the gospel message so that we don't get our theology off track. We do need to take sin this seriously, but we need to take sin seriously in connection with the grace of God through Jesus Christ and understand how those two things fit together. And so in verse 7, we, we see the need to honor the sacrifice for sin. To honor the sacrifice for sin. Look at me at verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. And here he's talking again about a Passover custom that was part of this feast of the unleavened bread. And if you were a Jewish kid, this would have brought back fond memories. I mentioned in Israel, you didn't have these really long lines of sourdough starter because they were required to kill them every year. Every year you had to get rid of all the leaven in your home. And they actually made it a game for the kids. 
And so the, the night you know, that you had to have all the leaven out of your home, uh, the, the game was one of the parents would take a little lump of leaven and they'd hide it somewhere in the house. And then all the kids would spend the evening searching high and low. And that was a way of, you know, getting your kids to clean up the house for free, right? Uh, they would search high and low to find any bit of leavening that had, that has escaped the cleanup routine. And of course, then whoever found the particular hidden piece of leaven, hooray, congratulations, celebration, all of that. Every year you would clean your house completely, make sure there was no contaminants left. And Paul is saying, that's what we need to do. That's what we need to be doing as a church. It's constantly evaluating ourselves, finding that leaven that we've allowed to remain, that, that sinful expression of who we were before Christ that sometimes we drag into our new life in Christ and becomes identified with the body of Christ. Find it, remove it, clean it out so that we can be, as he says, a new lump. A new lump. That's what we are in Christ. We're not what we were. This is a new thing that Jesus is doing. And the old has got to go. And notice a couple things he says here that are, that are really interesting. So that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. As you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Notice how he's connecting connecting theology to practice here. And this is something that I think it tends to send us for a bit of a loop. But for Paul, this was was just the way it works. Uh, A way that uh, you may have heard it mentioned a a number of times is God gives moral imperatives on the basis of redemptive indicatives. Uh, That's a great little phrase to summarize a lot of truth in Scripture. God gives moral imperatives on the basis of redemptive indicatives. Right, An imperative is a command. When God tells us to do something, a moral imperative, you need to obey in this way. Almost invariably in Scripture, it's connected to a redemptive indicative. Because I did this for you. Because of what I've done, what I've accomplished, because of how I've stepped in as a Savior, therefore your response to that ought to be this moral obedience. And here again, you see that that coupling. And as Christians who love the Savior, who love the Gospel, we always want to notice that coupling. The sacrifice is not us. When Paul pulls up the Passover imagery, he's reminding us, we're not the Passover sacrifice. We're, we're dough. <laughs> we're the bread. What was the sacrifice? It was Jesus. He was the Passover lamb. He was the one who died. It was his blood that brings us peace with God and allows judgment to pass over the people of God. That was what he did. And because of what he did, those who are in him, notice it says, are unleavened. That's what we are. We are unleavened. We have been made acceptable in the eyes of God. This is the glorious doctrine of justification. At the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ, on on the work of Jesus Christ in dying for sin and being raised to life by the Father, at the moment we trust in Jesus Christ, God declares guilty sinners not guilty. And that is what we are. We are not guilty any longer in the eyes of heaven. We don't always act like that, though, do we? We don't always act like those who have been made not guilty. And that's what Paul is saying. We need to line up. Because the sacrifice has been made, because justification has been accomplished, stop acting like you're still leavened bread. This is a new thing you got to start over. We've got to build our life around our new identity in Christ and not allow our old identity that we had in the world to seep back in and contaminate. And that's a big deal because Paul isn't here telling the Corinthians, be better, do more gooder, and maybe God will accept you. That's not the message, is it? And, and we have to really catch that. The message of the gospel, even the message that comes through church discipline is not a message of this is the place where if you don't measure up to this standard, then God won't accept you. That's not what Paul's teaching. That's not what we as a church should be practicing. The message of the gospel is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
That's the message of the gospel. And yes, sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. I need to start living like it. That's the message of the gospel. And Paul's pulling that back forward to the Corinthians' mind. And if you recall, that was the truth he had begun his book with when he wrote to the Corinthians and thanked God that they were holy people and then spends the whole rest of the book dealing with unholiness. Paul's able to boast in what God has accomplished despite the Corinthians, and now he is exhorting the Corinthians that in practice they would live more and more in conformity to who they are in Christ. That's the goal of church discipline. That's the goal of dealing with sin. It is not to make us please God. It is because God has been pleased to make us his children. We ought to be passionate about living according to obedience to his commands. And so if you want to write a couple of quick lessons down here, one would be this, what the Savior did motivates what the saints do. What the Savior did motivates what the saints do. Why is it time to get rid of the leaven? Well, because the Passover sacrifice has happened. That's why it's time, because this has been accomplished. Jesus, Jesus has died for sin, therefore sin is time to go. It's time to go by his grace, by his power, but through obedience. And that's that tension between God's work and our faithfulness. Am I responsible to obey God? Yes. Am I capable of obeying God? No. So do I need to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? Yes. By God's strength, which is working powerfully within me? Also yes. How does that work exactly? I don't know. But those are both clear. Jesus did it. Get to work. Right? And that's the Christian life. Praise God, Jesus did it. Now I need to be faithful. Secondly, we can't have a big view of Christ and a small view of sin. Those two things are not compatible. You can't have a big view of Christ and a small view of sin. You, this is something I see a lot uh, in the larger culture that, that is sad. And that is people that, that claim to love Jesus so much. And they love Jesus so much that they would just never, ever want to address sin. Because Jesus... My loving Jesus just couldn't stand anybody making anybody else feel bad. And I think, how sad that your Jesus is so tiny. Do you understand that sin is such a big deal that the only way there was to confront sin was not with tolerance, but was with the Father crushing His Son on the cross? There's no way to have a big view of what Christ has done for us unless we have a big view of the price that he paid for us. A big view of Christ and a big view of sin, they go, they go together. Now Jesus is stronger, praise God. But my goodness, as a church today in a culture that is so defined by lukewarm moral standards, we need to remember, we need to take sin seriously because we take the gospel seriously, because we take Christ seriously, because we cherish what he did. And we aren't worried about offending the culture. We are worried that we would not in all things be pleasing to him, as Paul said. You can't have a big view of Christ and a small view of sin. Well, I think Paul has grabbed the attention of the church there in Corinth. Hopefully he's grabbed our attention as well. Sin is serious. That seriousness is amplified when we consider it in contrast with the sacrifice of Jesus. We're new. We need to act like it. So what does that new life in Christ then look like? What is the goal that we're shooting for as a church so that we would honor the sacrifice of Christ, so that we would get leaven out from among us, so that we would be this new lump that we were made to be? And that's what Paul is going to give us there in verse 8. Look with me at the celebration of sanctification from sin in verse 8. Celebrate with sanctification from sin. Verse 8 says this, Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
So Paul, continuing the theme of the Passover, he says, we're the lump, Christ is the sacrifice. This life that we're living is the ongoing Passover feast, if you will. Our lives are this ongoing feast of celebration and worship to God. And it must be celebrated in a very specific way, marked by a very specific thing, separation from sin. Separation from sin, sanctification, right? It's that ongoing work of God in our lives where we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, as they used to say back in the good old days. That's what sanctification is. Letting go of sin, putting it to death, living righteously. And Paul says, that's, that's how we party as a church. This is what our living celebration of the feast looks like getting rid of the old leaven and walking in newness of life. And notice what he singles out as the characteristic of what we're getting rid of, the old leaven of malice and wickedness. Those two words are broad. They're sort of the broadest words that Paul can find to encapsulate anything that goes against God and his word and his character, all wickedness of every kind. Uh, in many many commentaries say that they're used essentially synonymously. If you want to make a distinction between the two, the slight distinction I think you can make here is malice focuses on a heart of wickedness, our motives for wickedness. And then wickedness itself focuses on the actions of wickedness, what we're actually doing. And so Paul is trying to throw the biggest possible net he can. He's saying we cannot tolerate in our midst any sinful passions and desires or any sinful practices. We can't want it. We can't do it. It's all got to go. And the battle starts there in the heart, doesn't it? We can't be those people who are cultivating hidden loves of sin and then just trying really hard not to do it when anybody's watching who might get me in trouble with church. Right? That's like toddler sanctification. Right? No, mommy, I would never eat that cookie. No, mommy, is she gone? Right? That's not what Paul's looking for, is people that look great on the outside and in their hearts they're longing for sin. He says, all of the desire for sin as well as all of the doing of sin, that's got to go. Let's get it out of here. And in contrast to that, he gives us the opposite. Instead, we should be walking in sincerity and truth. And these two words also are very similar and they're related. And they're also very broad. And I think there's the same distinction. Sincerity, the motivation behind living for truth. And truth, the actual accuracy and truthfulness of what we're doing. Paul's like, that's what characterizes the Christian life. We are truthful people. And we must be, right? If we love Jesus, we have to love truth because he is the way, the truth, and the life. You, you cannot be a lover of Jesus and not take seriously a desire to accurately know what God has said. It's one of the reasons we're a Bible church. We don't ever want to stray from the truth of what God has revealed about himself. So that our worship would always be in accordance with who God actually is and what God has actually said. And that also, just like we talked about with wickedness, that can't simply be an external thing. It's not just enough that we show up and like, well, yes, I read my Bible this week. I checked all the boxes. I went to church, checked that box. Good Christian, done. Do we live with sincerity? Is our heart in it? It's a heart in it. And I think that's a, a constant gut check for us as part of our daily time with the Lord to be saying, Lord, help me to walk with sincerity today. Yes, help me to do what's right. Help me to honor you. Help me to stay away from sin. But would you conform my heart so that my desires are for what is good and my desires are for what is true? And that if there's anything about who you are, anything about what you have revealed that I find I'm kind of grinding against, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. Would you soften my heart? Would you help me to understand you a little bit more so that I, all of who I am would want all of who you are? I think sometimes in our, in our Christianity, we, we sort of siphon off parts of our Christianity. Like, I love this part. That part I'm a little uncomfortable with, but I figured out how to just kind of avoid it. 
Uh, these commands of God are great. These standards, uh, that makes family reunions really awkward. So let's just kind of dodge around those. That's not living with sincerity. If we love all of God, let's love all of truth. And let's live by it sincerely. A couple lessons here. The Christian life must be built from the ground up. The Christian life has to be built from the ground up. Not everything we do will necessarily change when we give our lives to Jesus. That's true. Maybe before you came to know Christ, you liked frosted mini-wheats. And maybe after you came to Christ, you still liked frosted mini-wheats. That is not necessarily a sign of pervasive leavening in your life. However, when we come to Jesus everything gets rebuilt upon a completely new foundation. Following Jesus isn't something that pretty good people do to just bolt this new Jesus thing onto their lives so they can upgrade from pretty good to very good people. I think sometimes in America in particular, there can be that that sense of, I'm pretty independent, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty self-sufficient, but there's just a couple areas in my life, you know, I'm having trouble coping with this, I'm having trouble dealing with that, and maybe if I got some religion in here, that might just kind of round off those last few edges, and then I'll be I'll be all set as an individual. We can't we can't do that. The old has to be scraped away. What Jesus is doing is new from the ground up. Following, in, following Jesus is realizing that my life apart from Jesus is wholly contaminated by sin. And therefore I need to be a new loaf entirely, rebuilding my worldview at its most fundamental level. Who is God? Who am I? What is sin? What is salvation? What is right? What is wrong? How do I think in accordance with truth? How do I love in accordance with truth? How do I live in accordance with truth? You start over from scratch. And I think one of the challenges that often enters into a Christian life, especially a Christian who came to faith in a culture that has nominal Judeo-Christian ethics still floating around different places, maybe you grew up in a home where you were taught to be a good person as it's so easy to come and be a Christian without ever having wrestled with the fact that I had to be made new. I had to start over. I haven't realized that even those good things I was doing apart from Christ were, as Isaiah would say, filthy rags apart from him. Everything has to start over with, okay, God, I fear you, now what? And rebuild that back up from scratch. If we're trying to knead a little Jesus into the dough of our lives to fix the parts we don't like, it's not how this works. When I say we need to start from scratch, I mean faith in God according to his word, based on the sacrifice of Jesus and by the power of his Holy Spirit. And everything else in our life has to follow on from there. Guess what? That actually includes whether or not you still eat frosted mini-wheats. Because whether you eat or drink or whatever you do in Christ, now everything must be to the glory of God. We must be humble and unflinching in truth. A second lesson here, we must be humble and unflinching in truth. It's true that we're not perfect, but we must have lives that are marked by sincerity. It's very easy as Christians to become proud, uh, to feel like we're living good lives, doing good things as good people in our, our good Spokane Valley community. We ought to always be concerned that that old flesh that we used to be characterized by is still lurking back there in the shadows. And never put our boasting in ourselves, never put our confidence in ourselves, but always have the humility to be constantly analyzing our heart, analyzing our mind, analyzing our actions and saying, God, help me to do what is right. Help me to do what is true. Give me the humility to walk in obedience with sincerity and never, ever, ever be embarrassed by what God has said. That, that's how Satan gets us in, in our day and age. 
He tries to embarrass us away from those parts of Scripture that usually represent the front line of where he's waging war. You know, we don't have to necessarily flat out deny God or flat out deny truth, but if we can just have things that we're not comfortable living boldly for Christ in, if we can just have those things that we're not comfortable talking boldly about for Christ in, if there's just those parts of the battlefield we can just turn around and pretend aren't there, that's where he moves in. And so we must be humble, we must be sincere, and we must love all of truth, every square inch of it. Because if it wasn't all important, God wouldn't have said it. We're not perfect. We must be sincere. We don't know it all. Very true. But we must live by what we know. We're not claiming to have infinite knowledge, but we are claiming that when God has spoken, we believe it and we do it sincerely. I hope that it's been a convicting discussion of sin for us as we've walked through this. Um, I understand it's, it can be heavy. But I also hope that it is inspiring. All of us in here are sinners. All of us in here have things that we are ashamed to have done when we have been loved by so great a Savior. It's true. There may be some in this room who are hearing this and they're saying, how dare he talk about this? I'm not changing. I don't care. And if so, then yeah, Paul's talking about you. Right? That's, that's not Okay. Repent, brother. Repent, sister. Come back. But for most of us here this morning, I don't want this to be a, a bludgeon. I want it to be inspiring that our Savior saved us while we were yet sinners, but he has given us all that is necessary so we don't have to keep living like that. And that by his grace working through our lives, we can become that which he has made us to be in Christ. And we can, we can do that beginning in our own hearts and we don't even have to do that alone. That we can come being part of a family of other people that are going through the same process, who can see things in our lives that maybe we're still blind to and catch them early before it's overtaken the affections of our heart and say, hey, I'm a little concerned about this. Whoa, I did not see that. Thank you. Great. Now I can work on that. Somebody else, hey, I see something going on in your life that... Let's talk about what Jesus says about that. Wow, great. This can be a place where we are passionate about sincerity, where we're passionate about truth. We are judging rightly and not judging wrongly. Does that make sense? We're able to call things what God calls them, and we're also not comparing ourselves to each other. It's all about Jesus, and it's not about us. I hope that that is an inspiring thought. Some of the church in Corinth got a little caught up in this too much. Uh, they, they not only were seeking to be diligent to deal with sin in their midst, but uh, they took it upon themselves to not only be faithful in the church, but to become cultural vigilantes out in the world as well as in the church. And Paul's going to spend our last little section this morning in verses 9 through 13 saying, hold on, this is exciting. Dealing with sin is good conforming ourselves to the image of Christ is great. Being a new lump is good. Honoring the sacrifice of Christ as our Passover sacrifice is good, but, but it's for the church, people. This is for the church. And so he's going to help rein them in a little bit here in verses 9 through 13. If you're taking notes, uh, your second major point there is addressing sin is confined to the camp. And yes, we must address sin in the camp because it preserves the sinner, because it preserves the camp. But uh, Paul's now going to say, hold on. I'm just talking about the church. And he begins by setting up a misunderstanding they had. Uh, in, in verses 9 through 10, the church must be present in the world. Most of you probably have already filled in the rest of your blanks for the rest of this outline. Because it's, it's a very self-evident outline. And I couldn't think of any clever blanks to trick you. But the church must be present in the world. Look at verses 9. Uh, down through verse 10 there. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. When Paul says here, I wrote you in my letter, this is a reminder to us that we 
have not all of the correspondence between Paul and the church of Corinth in our Bibles. If you remember, Paul had written an initial letter to the church of Corinth that he's referring to here when I wrote you in my letter. So there is a, a letter he sent to Corinth before our first Corinthians. And in that letter, he was calling them to repentance. He was calling them to holiness. And that didn't go well, right? They rejected the letter. They rejected his authority. They would not repent. And so we get 1 Corinthians, where Paul's writing back, and he's saying, guys, this is serious. So 1 Corinthians is really 2 Corinthians. And he's telling them again, this is who you are in Christ, and this is what you need to be doing to live in accordance with what Christ has done for you. And here's how to solve various issues that I've heard about are going on in your church. Let's go, guys. This letter didn't go over very well either. They still said, no, thanks. We're going to keep doing what we're going to be doing. So then Paul has to write a third letter, 2 Corinthians, right? Nope, not yet. He wrote another letter that you can read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he references it again in chapter 7, a letter that he repeatedly says, made you sorrowful. And so sometimes this is called the severe letter of Paul. He wrote a third letter that we don't know what it said, but if it's ratcheted up from this letter, it must have stung Right? A letter that was designed to get their attention in no uncertain terms. It brought them finally to sorrow over their sin. And Paul said he's so thankful that they finally sorrowed over their sin because as he writes what we call 2 Corinthians, which is really 4 Corinthians, he's able to rejoice in the fruit that God is bringing about in their lives as they begin to repent and turn the corner as a church. So that's what he's referring to here when he says, I wrote you in my letter. It was his, this initial correspondence he'd had with them. This letter was given to them for the purpose of helping them, like I said, deal with sin in their midst. And when he wrote them, he commanded them not to associate with the immoral person, you'll see there. And some, when they saw that instruction, said, have you met my neighbors? Have you seen my boss? Right? Have you seen the people around me in the world? Immoral people everywhere. And so they were saying, well then, I guess I don't have to associate with any of them. I guess I'll just pull out and stick to myself, to my favorite people. And Paul's clarifying, stop it. That's not what I was talking about, and you know it. He gives them that short list there of examples, sins, uh, immoral people, covetous, swindlers, idolaters. He's like, what do you expect out in the world? That's what the world loves. It's what the world is. This, is. this is the world you live in. I'm not talking about having nothing to do with anybody in the world. Otherwise, you'd have to go out of the world. And the implication there is that's not our goal. We're not trying to leave the world. In fact, we must not. The church must remain in the world or the church can't do what the church is here to do. Jesus himself prayed this to his father in John 17. And he said, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Even as I am not of the world, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Right? The, the goal of the church is to be in the world and to steal people out of it, right? To, to bring people to the knowledge of Christ and by the grace of God to repentance and then to disciple them to maturity in Christ, to do that together as the body of Christ. Like that's, that's why we're here. So Paul says, you got this all backwards if you think my warning to you was to try to keep you from associating with the world. That's not what I'm talking about. The church must be part of the world. It is true, as a lesson here, we are to be no friend of sin. None of us are to associate with sin. We need to draw a hard line there. But we are to be a friend of sinners. You've heard the old adage, hate the sin, love the sinner. That can be used in ways that are sometimes unhelpful. As R.C. Sproul likes to point out, God doesn't send sin to hell. Uh, people actually do need to repent. But... For us as Christians, we need to understand God put us in this world for a reason, so that we would be good neighbors, so that we would love people around us. Yes, of course, those who are still immoral, or who are still covetous, or who are still swindling, because what else would you expect in a world that doesn't know Jesus yet? 
That's what we're supposed to be do. Be no friend of sin, but be a friend of sinners. Otherwise, we cannot accomplish our mission. People should immediately figure out when they get to know you that you're not the sort of person who is going to participate in anything that Jesus forbids. Right? If you have a, a neighbor who likes to engage in certain activities that are sinful, associating with them doesn't mean like, well, I'll join you, but with like my Jesus blinders on. No, we separate from sin. But we welcome people into our association who need Jesus. And that's what Paul is clarifying then in verse 11, is that our association ought to be warm to the world, but we must have standards of obedience in the church. Look at verse 11, the world must not be present in the church. The church has to be present in the world, the world must not be present in the church. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, If he is, and he's going to give us a list here, not an exhaustive list, but a representative list of the sorts of things that should not be tolerated as unrepentant sin in the lives of believers. He's like, this is what I'm talking about. In the church, if you have someone who says, I'm a Christian, but they're an immoral person. We've mentioned a few times that root where we get pornography from. We'll be addressing that blight very directly here in a few weeks when it comes up against comes up again in our text. Here Paul is using it very broadly for anybody who's not conforming their sexuality to God's standards in any rebellious way. He talks about covetous people, those who have an appetite that refuses to be content. They will not be content with what God has given them. Idolaters, those who are literally image worshipers, figuratively anyone who values anything higher than God revilers, a person who uses scorn and biting words to attack others and get their way can also be translated actually as abusive person. It's apparently quite common in the ancient Greek world for fathers to pride themselves on their ability to browbeat verbally their families into submission so they could look like a good, strong, in-charge man. And Paul says, not in the church. We don't do that here. A drunkard, a word commonly used of enslavement to alcohol, but it could also mean enslavement to other intoxicating vices as well. And a culture that likes to label all these things as addictions, make that a medical term, make it therefore not a sin issue. The Bible says, no, you don't get to do that. If you are under the control of anything but the Holy Spirit, it is sin. Or a swindler could refer to a robber, but the word also was more commonly actually used to refer to any rapacious or ravenous appetite like a wolf. It's a person who constantly needs to take more and more and more. It goes beyond the covetous person who simply cannot be content to somebody who is now characterized by an ungodly and unsatisfied consuming of things that are not theirs. And Paul says, if these kind of people are your neighbors, love them. Give them the gospel. Be the best neighbor they've ever seen. If these kind of people are going to be in your church and call on the name of Christ, he says, don't even eat with such a one. Do you see the distinction? In the church, ongoing unrepentant sin is cancer. It is a shame on the name of Christ. It is a threat to the integrity of the whole. And Paul says it must stop. We can only have one master. Our first lesson here, we can only have one master. You cannot serve your sin and serve Christ. And part of church discipline is forcing us to be occasionally reminded of that fact and have to pick the master we will serve wholeheartedly. Do I want to serve sin or do I want to serve Jesus? And discipline is discipline. It's not just like a check mark in some formal church book. Discipline is exclusion from the fellowship of the body of Christ right down to not even eating with someone until they have made their decision, either by saying, you're right, I, am, I have nothing to do with this Jesus because I don't love him, or I was wrong. I want to come back. In which case, welcome back. Paul summarizes all of this, wraps it up for us. Verses 12 to 13, let the church judge the church. Let God judge the world. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. 
pretty simple. Our judgment, where we make declarations, this is right and that is wrong. That declaration that governs our fellowship, those are judgments for the church. Our job is not to go picket our neighbors. Foul language alert. We don't have to validate or affirm. We must speak truth always. But our job in making these judgments is not for out there, it's for in here. But in here, it is our job to make these judgments. And Paul is going to start teaching us in our next week, that includes adjudicating lawsuits, like real, actual, this is for keeps kind of judging. In the church, we ought to be able to handle these things. But outside the church, that's where God is the judge. That's where God is to do his work, his way, and his timing. For us, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Understand your responsibilities, Paul says. That's our first lesson here. Understand your responsibilities. Out there, God's responsible. In here, we're responsible. It's our job. And we must be dutiful stewards. We cannot abdicate this responsibility or we will not have a church that honors Christ for long. And so we must walk with humility and trepidation, knowing this is not about us and our moral superior. This is about the standard over all of us and that we should all be passionate about. and We should all be beseeching God's grace for because we all together want to present to God an offering of worship that's acceptable and not allow leaven to fester and spread here. That's what it's all about. And that's what brings us this morning then to our time around the Lord's table. And I hope that it will be a meaningful time this morning as we consider Christ at the heart of all of this. We're in an age of political, ethical, moral tensions. Reading some articles even this week in places like the Atlantic about how the evangelical church is just ripping itself apart across all these lines. It can be hard to find the grounds of our unity today in the church. Some churches are building their unity around some broken notion of tolerance carefully avoiding any doctrinal clarity, any specific teaching of any hot-button issue, of any sin that the culture might be uncomfortable with. And over time, that tends to just make those churches just crash on the shoals of hard-left ideology and theological liberalism. Other churches, though, are doing the opposite mistake. They're building their unity around conservative politics and faith and idolized politicians, pundits, and news sources. That's where they're looking for their salvation from. That's been particularly potent over the course of this pandemic. And in our context, that often leads to churches drifting hard right and breaking up on the shoals of political activism. As soon as the church is obsessed with anything other than this, it is lost. What is the grounds of our Christian unity? What is the boundaries of our Christian discipline? What is the center of our Christian affection? It's this. It's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We should be involved as Christians sincerely in all kinds of things across the full spectrum of politics and the arts and work and education, but the church is different. Our mission has always, must always revolve around Jesus Christ and his work for us. We are those who have been made the bride of Christ. We are those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We make disciples around the world. We baptize them in the name of the triune God. And we teach them to observe, to keep, to guard all that he has commanded us. And that's why we are students of his word and students of truth. That's why we discipline ourselves. That's why we discipline our families. That's why we discipline our churches for the purpose of godliness. Consider these words as we prepare to partake together. 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. I write, Paul says to young Timothy, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you.
for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, for revealing him in the flesh, for vindicating him in the spirit through angelic testimony, affirming his divine origin by allowing him now to be proclaimed among the nations from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, even unto the uttermost parts of the earth that he would be believed on in the world. And as he was taken up in glory, so from there we await his return and we remember his death until he comes. And we pray that you would give us the grace as a church to in him be a new lump, to be unleavened in our hearts and unleavened in our hands, that we might be the visible bride and body of Christ on earth that would honor our head. And so this morning we partake in union with one another and in union with you and all to the glory of Christ and with a sober sense of the responsibility that we have now to live out what you have done. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together.